Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard, in love, because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and destructive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak and be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Rejoice always and pray continuously. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Jesus Christ. Do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Rejoice every kind of evil. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. You may, wait, you, wait, may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you, you is faithful, and he will do it. Brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all God's people with a holy kiss. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all brothers and sisters. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Excellent reading. Thank you. I think what we're looking at here is the effects of grace. The book of 1 Thessalonians begins with a reference to grace. In chapter 1, verse 1, he asks that, or hopes that, uh, or sends rather, grace and peace to you. And the last phrase of chapter 5 is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And so in all the questions they've got for him and all the issues that there are in Thessalonica, all of their difficulties with persecution, all of their confusion about the second coming, the thing that is a thread through the letter and in Paul's relationship with the church there, and he wants the church to be able to experience is the grace of God and that that grace has an effect on them and through them to other people. And I say that because a letter like this contains instructions. And it's important at times that we teach correct instructions of how to live the Christian life. But the point isn't the instructions. It's not a tick list. Have I done this? Have I done that? Have I done enough? Have I got up to the right measure? It's more about responding to the grace of Christ. And if we're responding wholeheartedly to the grace of Christ, then Christ is pleased. He's honored. And so is God. And the community here will be healthy. And we'll grow and learn more about what that means as we go along. So as we talk about some specific and practical things here, I pray that it's in the right spirit of honoring the grace that we've been given rather than just something we ought to be doing in a certain way. And so I think as one commentator put it about this passage, this is not so much, again, a tick list. It's more about the air we breathe as Christians. It's about the habits that we develop because of the grace of God. So... I see in this section five, you could say, subsections. Firstly, there's some uh, information about what a grace-inspired community looks like, how it interacts with each other. Secondly, there are some uh, descriptions of grace-inspired spiritual habits. Thirdly, there is some grace-inspired prayer, Paul's own prayer. And then fifthly, some grace-inspired communication. And then finally, that last verse about the grace of Christ. So let's have a look at these briefly one at a time. Firstly, the grace-inspired community. Now, you see here 
that he asks them to acknowledge the people who work hard among you, care for you, admonish you. Paul talked earlier about the fact that in chapter two, I think, that he was like a father among them, comforting, encouraging, and urging them to live lives worthy of God. It's these kinds of people with these kinds of roles he's talking about here. Probably elders, though we're not entirely sure. By the way, the Watford word, you've got two sheets this week because I didn't have time to edit it down to two sides. So you've got a lot of extra notes that I haven't got time to put into the lesson here today. Hold them in highest regard, which in the Greek is like, hold them in the highest possible regard above all other people you might know. It's like well, whoever you think of well, think of these people even better. These are to be held in, held in the highest, highest possible regard and love them because of their work. And I'm not going to say a lot about this because this is about loving people who lead you. And speaking as somebody who has a role of leadership, it does feel a bit strange saying, you better love me uh, or, or people in my role. So I'm going to just leave that there and say it's not just about someone like myself in leadership, but it's about anybody who takes a leading role in serving the church, I think, right? So this would apply to our worship leaders. It would apply to our children's ministry teachers and anybody with that kind of role. And by the way, it does say love them. Hold, regard, hold the highest regard in love. And the word there is agape. It's that Christ-like love. So it's not like just be grateful for them and give them a hug every now and again and say, you know, doing a good job. But it's actually actively agape love. Love them. So it's important that we express love in that, in that sense for people in that situation. But that's, there's something going on there. And maybe, maybe this is connected with the other instructions here where he says to warn the idle uh, and disruptive encourage the disheartened, help the weak, it may be that some of their leaders in Thessalonica had been doing some of these things, but hadn't been doing them very well. Maybe they'd been a bit harsh or a bit too direct. And so maybe he's saying, look, they, you've got to get this right, because he says they're in the middle of live at peace with each other. Maybe there's a little bit of tension between leader-type people in Thessalonica and the rest of the congregation. And he's saying, look, you've got to love them, do a hard job, live at peace with each other, and then as a community... Don't leave it up to everybody else to deal with the issues in your community, like those who are idle, those who are disruptive, and those who are disheartened, and those who are weak. It's a community responsibility to help these uh, situations. So let me ask you a quick question. What's the difference between the idle, the disruptive, and the weak? What would you say? How would you spot the difference? How would you know the difference between somebody who was being idle as opposed to someone being disruptive, or disheartened, which I missed off the list there, sorry, the disheartened, or the weak. Tell me some signs, signs of idleness, signs of disruptiveness, signs of discouragement, signs of weakness. How, what's the difference here? What do you think when those, you see those words, you think about that? What comes to mind? Idle is lazy. Idle is lazy, okay. Disruptive is probably somebody who picks faults with people all the time. Okay, disruptive, picking faults, yeah. The heart is different. <coughs> okay, not that we fix people, but I understand your point. But yes, okay, so repentance would be required from some of the people on this list, but not others. That's interesting. Yeah, Joe. I think the core of all three of us would Okay, just to do enough, be enough. All right. What else? I think with somebody who's not here because they're suffering or struggling, they might be, but once a week might not be here. And, and it's different to make 
Okay, noticing those who are disconnected, right? And, and being able to then help them, encourage them. Yeah, that will be someone who is maybe weak, is maybe not as connected as would be healthy. All right. Akin. I see weak, weak is why that said, you know, still have the right action. <laughs> when you don't have the strength, either emotional or physical, you do something. They hate that physical problem. I mean, they call it you. You have disruptive and idle means you actually have the strength, but you either use it to disrupt it, right? Uh, right? Or, or, or you are just not used to the problem. You know, uh, to help, to help other people who are committed to the same thing. So something, yeah, like that is there. That's a wonderful insight. I hadn't thought about that, but that is a difference in strength. The idle and the disruptive have strength, but not using it well. The dis disheartened and the weak don't have the strength and need other people to help them to have strength to cope with whatever it is that they're going through. Really interesting thought, that one. Yeah, somebody else had a hand up. Oh, Chris. The idle and disruptive, I think, is you choose to be idle and disruptive. Okay. To be weak, you don't choose to be weak. It's within you. Yeah, you don't really choose it. I, I think you're right. I mean, I think, frankly, I feel weak at the moment. I don't feel strong. Um, and partly that's because I'm missing my mum on Mother's Mothering Sunday, uh, she died two years ago. And, and partly because Penny's father died recently. And, and there's a lot of feelings, a lot of emotions, a lot of, a lot of things that are disturbed in me. And I, I don't feel stable. You know, I don't feel like I'm standing on solid ground. I, I don't feel disheartened exactly, and I, I do feel the love of God, but I don't feel strong because that's circumstances you're talking about, right? I didn't choose that. That's okay. Really interesting thought. I, we, we could spend a half an hour or more on this. We'll have to move on. But I would like to encourage us to think carefully about the difference because the way that we help each other, the way in which we help each other work through problems and challenges that we have depends upon, largely doing it healthily at least, depends upon rightly discerning whether we're dealing with somebody who's frankly idle, who needs to repent, or someone who's being disruptive, perhaps maybe needs to be understood, but nonetheless their behavior is not helping the body, or those who are simply disheartened, or going through a situation that creates a, a, a climate of weakness for them in their, in their current circumstances. <clears throat> and that's why I think he says to uh, warn the idle, doesn't say warn the weak, he says, uh, and, and the disruptive, warn the disruptive. He says, encourage the disheartened, help the weak. He doesn't say, thankfully, encourage the disruptive. Uh, <laughs> so you see where Paul's saying, do different things for different people in different circumstances, all to be done in love, not in judgment, but nonetheless. So, and that's something he's saying to the whole congregation here, right? So he addresses the leaders and the group there. And he says, you know, make sure you love these leader types. But then he kind of seems to address everybody and say it's a community responsibility to help those who are idle, disruptive, discouraged, or disheartened, uh, and, and weak. So, I leave that for you to think more about what that means in the way we do these things. But he does say, he does say also this, be patient with everyone. Now, what's the significance of that instruction? Why do you think he puts that in there, right in the middle of this section? Be patient with everyone at the end of verse 14. What do you think that's the Yeah, you're right. Frustration that we may feel often leads to judgmentalism with the people we're trying to help. Frustration is always a problem, isn't it? Okay. Anyway. Like the sexual abuse I know, whether that's the 
Timelines. Okay, so I, I may have my timeline as to when I'm going to help somebody and how they're going to then be miraculously changed and then I'm going to be done and dusted, they've been fixed, and then I'm going to move on. So uh, I might have my timeline, but we don't know what their walk with God is, where how God is going to take them through this. Right? So being patient because we are not God. <laughs> okay. Any other reasons why we might need to be instructed to be patient? Oh, right, yes. God is patient with us. We're imitating God by being patient with one another. Uh, one last reason is um, we're jolly grateful when people are patient with us. So therefore, it behoves us to make sure that we are patient with one another. We need patience, but we need to offer patience. Patience and prayer are a sign of a healthy Christian community, being patient with one another. Grace-inspired spiritual habits. I think the things he talks about here, by the way, are a great uh, set of personal Bible studies. If you want to, to go deeper, like what does it mean to rejoice? What does it mean to pray continually? What does it mean to give thanks in all circumstances? These would be good personal Bible studies. But let me ask you this question as we think about this. Is it possible? Is it possible to rejoice always, to pray continually? to give thanks in all circumstances. I mean, you can read those words and think, oh man, great thought. Well done, Paul, excellent. But then you have to think about it for yourself, right? He's telling them this is what is good for them, right? Is it possible? What do you think? What do you think? Great, okay. I think it's only possible Yeah, only possible if we're connected to God not trying to do that on our own resources. Any other thoughts? Yeah. If you stay in step with the Spirit, if you stay in step with the Spirit, you'd be able to do this. Okay, Akin. The first thing I think is very good. <laughs> possible, but I do think it's what I should aspire. You know, it's keep me daily aware. When when I find out something joyful, it's always to be joyful. You know, that's been the things that been sad and you know just contemplating the dark sufferings but I think it's not for falling it's the standard I should aspire to am I able to achieve it by myself I don't I can't I need God but this is when I'm close to God yes I'm sort of when I do it but to pay you know go for a long time and then I don't pray you know it's, I, I think just knowing that that's where I need to be really helps that's a lot yeah something to aspire to yeah good step um Yes. Okay. Trying to find joy in You wouldn't normally. You wouldn't expect to find the ability to rejoice or be joyful about something. Pen? I think really what Stefan said sometimes at the darkest hour, we can be grateful that God is doing something, even if we don't always know what it is. And sometimes we're going against it, but there will be something God has our best interests at heart and it will be revealed to us. 
It will. And I think this is the trust thing, isn't it? We've got uh, having faith in God that he will work something out. But it, we tend to rejoice. We tend to rejoice. I can't think of the right word. Um, after the fact. Right? After we found the thing to rejoice over. But it's faith that rejoices before we see the reality of the fact that we will end up rejoicing over. Right? And that's what the ancients of the faith were commended for, like Abraham, who trusted God before his son's born. And, and so he trusted God, he believed it. And there's something along those lines going on here, I think, as well. With God, we can. I do think, essentially, I think riffing off, I think it was Stefan's point, I think what he's really saying here is this becomes natural to us as we, come, as we become more familiar with the Holy Spirit. As we become more familiar with the Holy Spirit at work in us, it becomes a more natural thing to rejoice in all circumstances, the easier and the difficult. It becomes a more natural thing to pray as a natural response to anything that happens. We don't have to think about it. We just pray. It becomes a natural thing to be thankful in all circumstances, even if we can't see the light at the end of the tunnel just yet. Because we're in tune with God. And maybe that's why he reminds them in this passage to not quench the spirit, but to treat prophecies without, not with contempt, but certainly to test them. And I, we can't go into the theology of this right now, but I would say, I think essentially what he's saying is don't treat God's word with contempt. Because most prophecy in the New Testament, and indeed the old, but particularly the New Testament, is really God's uh, messengers bringing God's word to God's people. At a time when they didn't have a New Testament like we do, New Testament prophets would go around saying, this is what the Lord says. This is what Jesus said. And so it's really about honoring God's word. And in doing that, we're able to know what the good is and what the evil is, and then we have the strength to reject what is, uh, what is evil. So rather than quench the spirit, not putting the fire out, stoke the fire. Read God's word. Practice it. Trust it. And you'll be able to rejoice always, pray continually, and give thanks in all circumstances. So, oh, too far. Grace-inspired prayer. I see this section as like a template for prayer in a way. Paul does this every now and again in most of his letters. He'll kind of break what looks like break into a spontaneous prayer. And this is a prayer for the Thessalonians. He prays that God himself, the God of peace, who we mentioned at the beginning of the chapter, sanctify you through and through. What does sanctify mean? What is he talking about? What do you say? Sanctify you. Blessing God. Blessing God. Cleansing. Cleansing us. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry? Setting apart. That's what holy means, right? To be set apart. Any other thoughts? Preparing us. Yeah, preparing us to be vessels worthy of being used by God. Yeah, that's a, that's a, has that sense as well. Yeah, make you ho- sanctify you through and through, making you holy through and through. See, a Christian has been made holy in the sight of God, right? Sins forgiven, gift of the Holy Spirit. We're already holy enough for God by his forgiveness and grace, right? But he says here... I want God to sanctify you through and through. It doesn't mean they're not acceptable. It means they're not as Christ-like yet as they can be, as they're called to be. God's not finished his work in you through and through. Your whole spirit, soul, and body kept blameless. 
In other words, living the kind of Christ-like life that inspires one another and is a witness to the world because we live differently, not because we're keeping rules, but because we're growing in Christ-likeness. And the other issue about that Christ-likeness and why it's so important is because it also enables us to be closer to God and enjoy our relationship with God more fully. Did anybody enjoy their relationship with God more than Jesus? And Jesus enjoyed his relationship with his father more than any other person ever has, right? The more we become like Jesus, the more we can enjoy that quality of relationship with the father that Jesus had. Again, it's not about reaching a standard. It's about growing into the fullness of something that enables us. Again, perhaps we could say to more, rejoice always, pray, be thankful in all circumstances. It's about that growth in our character of Christ-likeness. And then he is saying this, grace-inspired communication. He asks for prayers, which I think is a really humble thing on, uh, on Paul's behalf. Uh, greets all God's people with a holy kiss. Is that that's something we should uh, restore here? You know, when we come in the door, we'll have a special holy kiss greeter <laughs> on the door. We'll, we'll nominate somebody, and they can be the holy kiss greeter. Restoring uh, first century Holy kissing. Uh, what do you think he's getting at here? What's, what's going on? Why would he say this? Why would he want them to do this? Bless. Blessing them, yeah. Show God's love. Sorry? Show God's love. Yeah. Yeah, it's a family thing. It's what you do in families, yeah? People you're particularly close to. Spiritual intimacy and connectedness on a very, really personal level. Yeah. Is this not Paul telling uh, those? It's a bit like if I see you and I know you're going to see Malcolm, so if Malcolm please give Malcolm a hug for me. Okay. So that's what he's saying. He's saying, yeah. oh yeah, give them a kiss from me. Yeah. Yeah, give, give them a kiss from me or like give, give a hug from me or for my best regards or whatever you're passing on. Yeah, there's something of that, isn't there? Because in that culture, it was common. And uh, in many cultures today, uh, people greet each other with a little kiss on the cheek, right? And um, because one of the reasons why he calls it a holy kiss is because there's more than one kind of kissing. And some of it is less than holy, <laughs> shall we say. And especially that in the temples, in the pagan temples. That, that's where prostitution happened. So he's saying, no, 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 but in this temple, give each other a holy kiss. And I think it is rather like what Stefan's saying. Chris, did you have a point? I just wanted to, uh, I was going to the sideline, but then I went to Belarus. The men in the church kissed the men on the lips, mm. and they hugged the women. Okay. Much to my husband's dismay. That's what they do. That's what they do? Okay. They convey something. Yeah. Something meaningful, right? Yeah, I do think it's a bit like the hug thing uh, that we might say. Uh, something, it's interesting that he says, actually, just, just uh, go back, because he talks about the kiss, and then he says, I charge you, by the way, which is one of the strongest words you could use uh, in that language in Greek, to, before the Lord, to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. So, a bit like what Penny was saying earlier, um, he was asking the congregation that got the letter to notice who was weak and missing, to notice who wasn't there and say, make sure everybody gets this letter. Everybody needs to hear this. It'll be helpful uh, for them. But he puts the kiss 
next to this instruction about the letter, and I think it says something about the idea that there's something about physical touch and proximity that we need. Families have that. But there's also something about the letter, something almost intellectual, considered, carefully thought through to communicate. And I think we need both in our community. We need that physical closeness. Earlier on, Paul talks about, in chapter two, is it? Talks about being, I was like a nursing mother with you. That's the skin tight thing. That's you know, really close. And that's why as Christians, we, we do need to spend time together, not just here, right? It's whether it's a coffee or, or in each other's homes or out for a prayer walk or I don't know. And I don't know how comfortable you are with hugging. Uh, I'm not gonna lay down a rule about it. Uh, when I first came to a congregation like this, uh, in the 80s, uh, there was no hugging. Um, it was handshakes only. And uh, they were very intimidating handshakes. <laughs> well, normally you shake someone's hand, it's like, hi, how are you? Fine. These people hugged, shook my hand as if they meant it. Like there was actually something behind it. Like, Good to see you, Malcolm. They'd look me in the eye and I'd be like, what's, what's wrong with you? <laughs> Fine, thanks for you know, shaking my hand. And, and later on it developed into, okay, we, we actually took a vote. Uh, most of you weren't around then. We took a vote as a church on whether we would hug or not, and whether we would do the holy kiss physically, practically, or not. And thankfully, we, we voted against the holy kissing, but we voted for hugging. And so then it came into our, our sort of culture. I don't know if you're a hugger or not. You don't have to be. But there is something Paul's getting across here about that comfortability in each other's space together. We need that together. And we need the more intellectual thinking, if you like, of how can I help somebody? When they're weak or disheartened or discouraged, what would actually help them? Maybe it's even a letter. Maybe it's a note. Maybe it's a WhatsApp. I don't know. But there's different ways to communicate our love and to, uh, to help one another. So to wrap up, what does he say at the end? He says in verse 28, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Let's go back there. There it is. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Be with you. Be with you always. Be with you, not just it was with you when you got your sins forgiven, but the grace be with you now. Be with you today. Be with you on Sunday, the 19th of March. Be with you at um, 11.33 on Sunday, the 19th of March. Be with you tomorrow morning. Be with you on Wednesday evening. May the grace of the Lord Jesus, the grace of, of Jesus Christ, of Jesus the Savior and Christ the Messiah, Savior, Messenger, representative of God, showing us the Father's heart. That grace... His grace, his personal grace, his love for you, his mercy to you, his forgiveness of you. May that be your current and ongoing experience. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. It's a common phrase used at the end of many traditional church services, or a variant on that. And why is it tradition? Why is it there? It's there because it's, it's the fundamentals of everything we believe in and trust in and need. Without the grace of Christ, we really, there's not much point doing what we do. He wants that to be their, not just their knowledge, but their experience. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So I pray and hope that what we talked about today, what we've experienced here together, will deepen our appreciation of the grace of God and the grace of Jesus Christ so that we will ourselves be inspired to live a life of, a life that Paul talks about here. A life inspired by grace. The effects of grace will be felt through us to the world. Ultimately, we contemplate the cross to remind ourselves of the grace of Christ. 
because that's that's where he demonstrated his the price he was willing to pay so that we could experience his grace. The cross is what we gaze at. The cross is what we meditate on. The cross is what we pray about. It's what we sing about. It's what we read about. The cross is, uh, as we take these emblems of the body and blood of Christ, we eat and drink this, not as a ritual, but as a way of reminding us of the love of Christ and the grace that he's given us. This is a symbol of grace, isn't it? If it's anything. So we're going to... We're going to take this in a moment, and I encourage us to meditate on and think on the grace of Jesus while we do so. And Steve, are you okay to do a prayer for us? Steve's going to come and lead us in prayer, and then we're going to take the communion and sing a lovely song as well, and then we'll wrap up after that. Steve, you'd like to come on. Thank you.